communications, Warhurst. Yeah, I want to report a crime that's about to happen. What do you mean a crime that's about to happen? Yeah, there's about to be a crime that's going to happen if my kids don't come back to me, you stupid Because your stupid judges don't want to bring people to courtrooms. I got a gun pointed at your building. Volusia County Sheriff's dispatchers received that call Friday night from an irate father who made a series of profane threats toward a judge who presides over juvenile delinquency cases in Daytona Beach. The suspect was tracked down Saturday in Santa Rosa County and jailed. That story, as well as the story about a long-awaited arrest in a Palm Beach County case from 27 years ago involving a shooter in a clown suit and a profile of a 43-year-old cold case out of Dixie County involving the death of a San Francisco area man are all coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the arrest of Alan McCarty, a 35-year-old man who's had brushes with the law from Daytona to Arizona. He is now accused of calling sheriff's dispatchers four separate times and going on racist and obscene rants while threatening a local judge. Later, in our Only in Florida segment, I'll talk to you about a 1990 homicide case in Wellington in which an assailant dressed in a clown suit and holding a flower arrangement rang the doorbell at the house of a woman, then gave the woman who answered the door some balloons, and then followed that by drawing a gun and shooting the woman in the face. The victim died, and the female suspect avoided arrest for 27 years, but a grand jury recently indicted her, and she was jailed last week. One of the biggest twists of the story is that the suspect married the husband of the victim, and for years the pair ran a popular restaurant in the Tennessee Valley. And finally, in our Looking Back segment, we'll review the mysterious cold case of Jimmy Norris, a San Francisco area man who in 1974 flew 3,000 miles with more than $10,000 of his and his friend's money to purchase Colombian-grown marijuana in Citrus County, Florida, unbeknownst to his family. He wound up murdered near the Gulf of Mexico. His remains were found a couple years later, but those bones were not matched to Norris until 2011. His five siblings went 37 years without knowing their brother's fate. My special guest for that segment will include Florida Department of Law Enforcement Special Agent Mike Kennedy and Citrus County Chronicle reporter Buster Thompson. You'll also hear from Rosemary Norris Southward, the victim's youngest sister, who law enforcement has credited with giving the investigation renewed life. I'll discuss the threats made against the Volusia County judge after the break. A Northwest Florida man made a series of death threats against a Volusia County judge by phone Friday night. He never called the judge directly. 
but he rang up sheriff's dispatchers and relentlessly yelled and cursed at them. A suspect was arrested early Saturday morning more than 400 miles away from Daytona Beach in Milton, located just northeast of Pensacola. Crime analysts matched the voice of Friday's caller to previous voicemail recordings, and a warrant was promptly served against the 35-year-old Alan McCarty, who was charged with corruption by threat against a public servant. The judge he was threatening is Stasha Warren, who was elected to the bench in 2016 and hears juvenile delinquency and dependency cases at the Volusia County Courthouse Annex in Daytona. The first call the suspect made lasted close to two minutes. The caller's first tirade came when the operator tried to pry more information out of him. Then he started in on Warren. Sir, what is going on? Who the f*** are you calling, sir, you stupid Don't call me names. You call me names, I'm going to call you some. I ain't your f- sir, you dumb f- Where's your judge warrant at? You gonna bring that out in handcuffs and I'm gonna execute that right in the street. Okay, where are you at? You wanna people getting custody of their kids? You wanna help people getting custody of their kids? You wanna violate American civil rights, you stupid You want part of it too? The caller spoke like someone who had lost custody of his children. The threats were pouring out of him as he continued to mention the judge, and he claimed to be waiting outside her courthouse with gun in hand. Do you hear me, you stupid Okay, I'm gonna disconnect the line, sir. You're gonna what? I'm letting you know, I'm gonna shoot this You gotta give me my kids. Where are you at, sir? Mother I just told you I'm outside of her building waiting for her to get there in the morning. I'm gonna pop a cap in that You stupid Y'all wanna sabotage a man getting his rights to his kids, huh? That's what the law y'all are upholding, you stupid I'll say it on the news with your judge's head below my knife. As a precaution, Volusia County Sheriff's deputies and Daytona Beach police officers did patrols Friday night in front of Warren's home. The calls also were sent to analysts who began working on matching the voice to a suspect. A break in the investigation came from a deputy assigned to Warren's courtroom. She thought the man's voice bore a striking resemblance to the voice of a man who made threatening comments to a judicial assistant back in July. The deputy gave investigators McCarty's name, and investigators made the match. The call also was traced to Northwest Florida, where McCarty was tracked down and apprehended by Santa Rosa County Sheriff's deputies. Communications, Braithwaite, how can I help you? Yeah, I need to put your judge on the phone. Yeah, I'm sorry. You hear me? Put your stupid judge warrant on the phone, you Operators kept disconnecting the calls because of the caller's abusive language and explicit threats. A sheriff's office spokesman also said the caller was using racist language. What seemed to trigger the caller the most was being called sir. He really hated that. Communications, Murphy. Yes, yeah, a new law we just wrote. Your judge is going to 
die for sabotaging people's cases, you stupid Okay, sir, everything New laws. that you're saying is... New laws are passed. Don't call me, sir, you stupid All right, sir. New I'm laws gonna, are being passed gonna... every day and the death of people because of y'all. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and disconnect because I'm not going to be talking well, to you He called back one more time and swore at a fourth dispatcher. McCarty is awaiting transfer to the Volusia County Branch Jail. His third-degree felony charge, if it results in a conviction, could land him in prison for up to five years. Coming up, I'll discuss the solved cold case of a woman who was killed at her front door by an armed assailant in a clown suit. This was a tenacious effort on the part of the cold case detectives, the people from the state attorney's office, and the FBI. That was Palm Beach County Sheriff Rick Bradshaw praising the investigative and prosecutorial work done by multiple agencies that resulted in the indictment and arrest of Sheila Keene, who was accused of dressing up as a clown and killing the wife of her future husband. On May 26, 1990, a person wearing an orange wig and white face paint parked a white Chrysler convertible in the driveway on takeoff place in Wellington and walked up to the front door with a basket of carnations in one hand and some balloons in the other. Palm Beach County Sheriff's Detective Paige McCann described what happened that day during Tuesday's media conference in West Palm Beach. It was at that time that uh, the clown pulled out a gun and shot Marlene in the face. Um, she was transported to the hospital where she died two days later. Um, the witnesses at the scene said that the clown just turned around, walked back to the car, got into the white Chrysler LeBaron, and just drove away very calmly. The victim was Marlene Warren, who was married to Michael Warren who 12 years later got married to Keene. At the time of the shooting, Keene, who is now 54 years old, worked for Michael Warren, who ran a used car lot. Keene was arrested Tuesday at her lakefront home, which she shares with her husband in Abingdon, Virginia. Authorities said Keene put her hands over her face and cried when they showed up. The Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office confirmed the case remains open, but the sheriff avoided saying whether Michael Warren was a suspect. Michael Warren and his current wife previously owned and operated the Purple Cow, a popular restaurant in Kingsport, Tennessee, located close to the Virginia border. Detectives admitted that Keene was a suspect all along, but evidence was not plentiful enough in 1990 to make an arrest. One of the victim's sons told the Palm Beach Post in 2000 that he had witnessed the shooting. He heard the shot from the kitchen and made his way to his mother, who was lying on the floor. He yelled at the person in the clown suit and recalled seeing the clown turn around and make eye contact with him. The son called 911. He was recovering from a recent car accident and was sporting a cast, which limited his mobility. But he nonetheless grabbed a set of car keys, pulled out of the driveway, and drove around frantically trying to find the Chrysler convertible driven by the clown, but he never found it. He told authorities that Michael Warren 
who was his stepfather, was on Interstate 95 heading to a casino in Miami. Law enforcement has said he had an alibi at the time of the shooting. The convertible, which had been reported stolen out of Michael Warren's used car lot, was eventually found abandoned in Royal Palm Beach. Nothing else was recovered. No gun, no prints, and no clown suit, although orange fibers were found in the car, likely from the wig. Detectives were aware that Keene and Michael Warren were suspected of having an affair in 1990. Additionally, witnesses came forward saying Keene looked just like the woman who had bought a clown costume at a store days before the killing. And one of the two balloons, one that had the words, you're the greatest, etched across it, was sold at only one store at the time, a public supermarket located near Keene's home. And once again, employees said the woman who bought the balloon fitted Keene's description. McCann addressed the question of why Keene was not charged 27 years ago. You get basically one shot. If you roll that dice and you take that chance and she's found not guilty, then she never can be charged again. So sometimes just patience is the best. The case was reopened in 2014, and new advances in DNA technology resulted in the grand jury indictment against Keene. Neither McCann nor Bradshaw would give any information about the genetic material that was found that matched Keene to the crime. The Associated Press also reported that Marlene Warren had told her mother that if anything ever happens to her, she should assume that her husband did it. Michael Warren has a criminal record. He was convicted in 1994 of grand theft, racketeering, and odometer tampering, and he served nearly four years in prison. The restaurant he and his current wife operated, the Purple Cow, was recently sold. Here is Sheriff Bradshaw telling the media, in analogous terms, how DNA technology has changed so dramatically since 1990. Remember the days when we had the cell phones that were about this wide, like a brick? And now we got smartphones that you can do everything on? That's the difference between the technology back when this happened and today. It's exponentially so much better. During a hearing in Washington County General District Court, it was announced that Keene would not fight extradition to Florida. She would remain in the Southwest Virginia Regional Jail until Florida authorities picked her up and took her back to Palm Beach. They have up to 10 days to make the transport, according to an article in the Bristol Herald Courier. Coming up, the story about a still unsolved cold case out of Dixie County involving a Bay Area man who was killed during a vacation he decided to take for the purpose of buying a large amount of marijuana for himself and some friends back home. On this day in 1974, James Norris told his family, including his youngest sister, Rosemary, who was 13 at the time, that he was taking a trip. He wasn't specific. He only said that he would be gone for a few days. He also asked that his family watch his dog while he was away. It was the last time his family ever saw him. 
the 24-year-old James, or Jimmy, in many ways embodied the California counterculture. He was in vehement opposition to the Vietnam War. He lived in San Francisco, the epicenter of the hippie movement. And he regularly listened to the area's most famous psychedelic rock bands, including Quicksilver Messenger Service and Jefferson Airplane. Jimmy was fiercely independent, a nature lover, and he liked the thought of coming and going as he pleased, but he was also hopelessly devoted to his family. Among those he doted on was his youngest sister, Rosemary, now 56 years old and living in Fairfield, California. Rosemary Norris Southward still has innumerable memories of her late brother. Jimmy was just so different, a very special soul, I guess you'd say. He he was very free-spirited. He was just larger than life. He was charismatic. He was, you know, he was attractive. He was uh, very, he was artistic, poetic. When he was in the room, you knew it. It's kind of a rock star sort of vibe to him. You know, he had this Jim Morrison look to him when he got to be a teenager, and so he would you know, drive up in front of the house and, you know, people would notice. He drove a little green MGTD and, you know, he had that sort of, uh, kind of that Jim Morrison vibe happening around the kind of, you know, so. But anyway, yeah, I, I, you know, I did. I looked up to him. He was, you know, he was my big brother who, you know, could do no wrong in my eyes. After Jimmy left, a few days turned into a week. Soon after that, Jimmy's mother began to worry. She started calling his friends and got nowhere, at least at first. There was one clue. Unexpectedly, on October 4, 1974, Jimmy mailed a postcard to his family. That's how his parents and siblings found out he had gone to Florida. But they still had no reason why. The postcard gave no information. We received a postcard in the mail, uh, and it was postmarked from, you know, this place called Inglis, Florida. We, we had never heard of that, so we were, I remember being surprised that he was in Florida. The postcard was just some sort of general, um, you know, it didn't mention anything about where he was. It just, it had, the, there was a picture on the front that depicted this attraction. I think it was in Winter Park, Florida. It had a peacock on it. I remember that. And um, it just said, you know, um, I'll be home soon, you know, that kind of thing. Inglis is in Levy County, located between Dixie and Citrus Counties, two places critical to the future investigation of this murder. Eventually, the family hired a private investigator. A road trip was taken to Jimmy's apartment, where his roommate turned over to Jimmy's mother an address book. That address book turned out to be a very important discovery. Questions of Jimmy's whereabouts kept getting asked, until finally, his friends came clean. They had pulled their money together, more than $10,000, so that Jimmy could fly to Florida and purchase Colombian-grown marijuana. He flew into Miami, but then trekked 300 miles northwest to the Floral City Inverness area in Citrus, where he intended to buy the cannabis. Rosemary recalled how persistent her mother and the private investigator had to be before Jimmy's friends told them the full story 
about his trip to Florida. Eventually they did. It took a while for them to come out with the truth. Because at first they were pretty mad. They thought that my brother had burned them, that he had taken their money and just started a new life elsewhere. Because my brother had taken this money that he had collected from people who wanted to purchase this large amount of marijuana. They pulled their money and he went to Florida to make this purchase. So when all of a sudden he was did not return when he said he was going to, they became suspicious and angry and thought that he had stolen their money. I remember going to San Francisco with her one time uh, shortly after my brother disappeared and we went to his apartment in the city and she retrieved his belongings and one of the one of the items that she got um, there was his small little address book and within the address book there were several phone numbers for individuals in Florida different parts of Florida but several of them had come from what she found out later was in Citrus County Florida so it was just a big mystery because we like I said we didn't you know we didn't have any connection with Florida there is plenty of pot in California so why go through all of that trouble while carrying all of that cash to make such a huge buy in Florida for starters California grass is actually grown in Mexico which is different for better or worse than the stuff grown in Colombia. Supply and demand in California also caused prices there to soar. By comparison, Colombian cannabis, which at the time could only be obtained domestically in Florida, was far cheaper. It apparently burned better too. Not long before Jimmy's trip, the world found out about the abundance of Colombian grown marijuana in Florida through news stories of what was then the biggest pot bust in U.S. history. It was also profiled in High Times Magazine, Pot Smokers' go-to source for updates on the hippie lettuce trade. I'm referring to the Steenhatchy 7, a group of smugglers who had more than nine tons of marijuana on a shrimp boat. They acquired the drugs in Jamaica and set sail for rural Gulf Coast, Florida. The goal was to move the drugs onto trailers in Dixie County, just south of Steenhatchee, but the low tide disrupted the operation. So the smugglers had to wait, and wait, and wait for the tide to rise. But they waited too long. The sun came up, and the boat, as well as all of its contraband, was in plain view of authorities. Word got out. Florida, all of a sudden, became known as the place to go for cheaper and arguably better cannabis. Here is Florida Department of Law Enforcement Special Agent Mike Kennedy talking about that moment in law enforcement history and how that remote stretch of Florida became an enticing destination for some. They knew that that was a huge area for smuggling. It got a lot of nationwide news because basically there was a shrimp boat full of marijuana that they were offloading to tractor trailers. And the reason they were caught, the reason Steam Hatchy 7 were caught is that the tide, when they had so much marijuana, they weren't able to get it offloaded before the tide went out. And there was a barge full of bales of marijuana that was sitting there when the sun came up and it got noticed. 
they were going to wait until the tide came back in to finish offloading the barge. But at the, at the time, it, it was the biggest marijuana arrest in the country, and it was more notable that it was in an area so isolated. That arrest got a lot of nationwide publicity. It was on the cover of High Times Magazine, and it generated interest in folks coming to that part of Florida to obtain Columbia marijuana. At some point, for reasons never disclosed, Jimmy was targeted, robbed, and murdered. It took 37 years before his homicide was confirmed, yet his remains were found less than three years after the slaying. They were found on April 16th, 1976, near U.S. 19 in Dixie County, just south of the Taylor County line. Jimmy's bones were discovered by a bulldozer operator working for the Taylor County Road Department. He was in Dixie in one of the Lime Rock pits, going from one pit to another. He stopped his bulldozer, hopped off, and headed into the woods to take a break. That's when he saw the remains. Rosemary, who has memorized so many details of the investigation, explains in detail how her brother was discovered. The remains were found in a very remote area that's in the woods in Dixie County, Florida, along the Gulf of Mexico and Florida. Um, they were recovered on uh, just off of US 19 at the northern part of Dixie County, where just south of the Dixie, I mean, uh, just south of the Taylor County line, so where Dixie and Taylor meet, just south of that, right off of US 19 in a wooded area. So what, it was like a bulldozer operator was moving, you know, through this wooded area. There was a quarry or something there at the time. And he got off his tractor, or the bulldozer, he got he got down off the bulldozer and he saw the skull, the top of my brother's skull, just like the sun was hitting it. And so he got a little closer, he's just checking it out. And that's when he realized that there was a human remain. For a couple years, investigators actively attempted to identify the bones, but they had no leads. The bones were stored in vinyl bags, which were placed in a box and mostly remained untouched on the shelf for 33 years. Meanwhile, Jimmy's family remained perplexed and devastated. His siblings didn't necessarily latch onto the notion that he had split and started a new life with the money his friends had given him, but they weren't quite ready to bail on the possibility that he was still alive. His mother, however, never believed Jimmy was still alive. She believed from the outset, from the moment she learned of his motive for the Florida trip, that someone had ended her son's life. My mom knew right away. She had that sense that, no, this is wrong. He would never, he would never just disappear like that. And she knew that once she heard it was a, you know, a drug transaction, she knew that he'd been killed. Um, it took me a lot longer to accept that. Jimmy's mother, Esperanza, died in 2007 after a long bout with Alzheimer's disease. Rosemary describes how her brother's death deeply affected her mother. This really fractured the family. It devastated my mother, who was the strongest person I know. 
but this brought her to her knees and um you know that not knowing that going for year after year after year i mean i remember in the beginning she's got a place for him at the table you know for holidays but this just crumbled her she'd been through so much adversity in her life but then when this hit it was just like um like nothing else nothing else you could ever imagine and at the time, because I was, you know, I was just, I was a teenager. I was consumed with, you know, the years. You live in a very self-centered world when you're a, a teenage girl of that age. And I never really had a sense for just how horrible this must have been as a mother until I became a mother myself. And just cannot fathom that that pain of, of not knowing what happened to your child. And it, was, it was a very, very dark, tough time going through that. Rosemary took the baton from her mother. As the internet was becoming more of a household luxury, Rosemary, who knew next to nothing about computers, decided she would purchase one. She did so with the purpose of using this so-called World Wide Web to help find out whatever she could about her missing brother. I got my first computer sometime in the mid-90s, and one of the things I kept thinking was, when I bought, you know, I was thinking, okay, I want to buy a computer so my kids can use one, but I thought for my own personal use, I've heard all these great things about this thing called the Internet, and I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, look for Jimmy and somehow use the computer to search. So I'd approached my mom in the early 90s or so, and I told her, I said, I'm going to buy a computer, Mom, and I'm going to look for Jimmy. I'm going to use it to look for Jimmy. And so she gave me this the box that she kept in the closet with all her notes, her investigative notes, the private investigator's report, the address book, and a bunch of other items. And so she gives me the box and she says, okay, well, here, you know, you can, I hope the computer can help. So at that point, I was still thinking, okay, I'm not going to rule anything out. I doubt that, you know, he would have abandoned the family like that and stolen his friend's money. I seriously doubt that, but I'm not going to rule anything out. So I started going online and learning. And I remember at the time, I didn't even know how to use the mouse and the computer. My daughter, who was in elementary school, had to teach me how. But eventually, I kind of got dialed in with this large community of, you know, civilians like myself who were just looking for loved ones. And there were some people in there who were just like amateur sleuths who did it for, you know, kind of a hobby sort of thing in a way. But that's how I learned how to do it. I mean, I was online and putting his story out there on all these websites I could find. I was connecting with people who told me, okay, this is what you should do now. And this is what, you know, this kind of thing. And I just asked for a lot of help. The Dixie County Sheriff's Office and FDLE are actively investigating the case. Investigators have asked Rosemary not to divulge certain information, and she is obliged. But she has said, both on her website and to me, that those notes taken and saved by her mother included vital details, and they have gone a long way toward helping investigators. Rosemary's own private investigation took a sharp turn in 2003. She reached out to one of Jimmy's old girlfriends, who told her unequivocally to give up on the idea that Jimmy was still alive. She kind of 
set me straight, though. She said, no, he's not out there alive somewhere. He's, he's dead because he would never, ever do that to your mom. Rosemary understood. She's never had to be told that again. There really was no way Jimmy would cause that kind of heartbreak. Not to his mother. Last year, the case drew interest from Buster Thompson, a reporter with the Citrus County Chronicle. He started looking at a number of cold cases in and around Citrus, and the case of Jimmy Norris jumped out at him. One of the reasons his interest kept growing was simply the magnitude of affection Jimmy's siblings had for their brother. He learned that through his communications with Rosemary, his main source for the story he wrote in June of 2016. He still had a, a great you know, love for his family, no matter where he went. Um, you know, especially for his mom, um, his, his late mother, and uh, to his sister. Um, so if you, it, it felt like Jimmy, you know, even though he traveled a lot, even though he wanted to study and enjoy the world for what it had to offer, he still had the connection back home uh, and to his family. There was the drug buy. There was the tight-lipped group of friends. There was the postcard. There was a strangeness to it all. I would say for the interest for me was that uh, you have this this man who um, uh, Jimmy who who made this um, impromptu trip to, to Florida from California this this cross country flight to get you know Colombian grade marijuana and and he just he just disappears and the last the last um, bit of contact that Jimmy had with his family was uh, was a post. In 2004, Rosemary learned about the California Department of Justice Missing Persons DNA program. The short of it is that family members of missing people could provide DNA samples through cheek swabs for the purpose of building up a DNA profile. She and her family members, including Esperanza, drove to the Fairfield Police Department headquarters and submitted those swabs, which were placed in kits and sent to a state lab. Just that sense that this is it. I know that something's going to come with this. I, I still remember that feeling. We were, my family, we were walking out of the police department in Fairfield here, and I remember just having that strong sense that this is it. I just had a lot of faith, I guess, in science and technology, and um, I just had that, I don't know if you call it premonition or just that confidence that was, you know, my kind of, I really got my optimism just ramped up. In 2009, seemingly out of nowhere, an FDLE investigator decided to check the state's skeleton inventory. The remains discovered in April 1976 in Dixie jumped out at him. He could not believe that nearly an entire skeleton was stored and nobody had traced it to a missing person. The skeleton was sent to the University of North Texas, which was on the cutting edge of extracting DNA from bones. Here is Kennedy discussing what happened during the next two years. When we got the results back from University of North Texas, they recommended that we put the information of the remains into the NamUs website, which is a federal government website for missing and unidentified persons. When we went to put the information in, we realized that there was a section on there where you could search for missing people. We did a search for Florida, and James Norris's name came up. 
and it said, and NamUs said that there was a DNA profile available. We contacted NamUs. They said that Norris's family had put their DNA on file with the California Department of Justice. We contacted the California Department of Justice. They sent the family's DNA profiles to University of North Texas, for, and University of North Texas said, yes, the remains are of James Norris. Uh, Dixie County Sheriff's Office and us coordinated with the Fairfield Police Department to make notification to Norris's family that his remains had been identified. That was the breakthrough Rosemary had waited for. She still recalls the day a Fairfield police detective came to her house to deliver the news. She still remembers them sitting in her kitchen. She was caught completely off guard. Her emotions were so confused. He comes over and he says, I got to tell you something, Rosemary. And he starts in with, you know, saying that these remains were discovered and back in 76. And they did a, a comparison, DNA comparison. It's your brother, it's James. And I mean, I still get chills when I hear myself say it because I, it's just like I listen to him. I can hear him saying it. And I, I felt embarrassed for him. I felt like. No, it's not. You know, I felt, (laughs) I didn't believe him. I just, you know, at that point, it it was so strange because that was the last thing in the world I expected him to say. So I let him talk, and even though I didn't believe it at first, and then all of a sudden, he started giving me more details. And all of a sudden, I realized that it was true, and I remember just feeling like I had the wind knocked out of me and I had that I mean I even just talking to you right now about it I can feel my throat kind of tighten up just because I am revisiting that it was it was anguish it was it was shock it was um you know just pain it was it was anger I didn't know I was going to feel anger but I did I was like somebody killed murdered my brother I was so mad I, I felt relief, and this was all just like cascading, one after the other, bam, 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 you know, just within minutes, just right there in my kitchen. Kennedy would not talk about the manner in which Jimmy died, but he insisted there was no room for doubt. He had been slain. Uh, based on the evidence that we have recovered, you know, we believe this is a homicide. Now, obviously, we can't get into the details of that, but, but based on the evidence we recovered, we feel confident this is a homicide. It was now known by everyone. Jimmy was robbed and murdered during his trip to Florida. Even now, even as marijuana laws in Florida and across the country are being loosened and re-examined, there is probably a stigma that sticks to a man who flies to Florida to make a drug purchase, a very large one. When it came time for law enforcement to announce to the news media the break in the case, Rosemary and her sister Kathy flew to Florida to join Dixie County Sheriff Dewey Hatcher and FDLE Special Agent Don Lander for the press conference. With the cameras on her, Rosemary spoke from the heart about her brother. My brother was a lot of things, and he was a a teacher. He taught English as a second language in San Francisco. He was a graduate of San Francisco State. He was a dreamer, he was creative, he was a poet, he was an artist. He loved to wrench on VW Bugs. 
it wasn't just about marijuana. It was about a, a, a son, a brother, um, just a, a very, very loved person who was a beloved soul. Also, while in Florida, Rosemary had to do something beyond her imagination. She went to a lab in Tallahassee, where she came face to face with her brother's bones. I picked up my brother's skull. Nobody should ever have to do that. I picked up my brother's skull and there was still clay, malleable clay within the eye cavities where they had, FDLE had done so much to try to figure out the identity of, of you know, the skeleton. It had a, a clay reconstruction done um, about 1980, I believe, when they did that. So over the course of, you know, years, they had tried to do these, to identify Jimmy um, without success. So that was that was something that um, kind of was, kind of knocked the wind out of me again with seeing my brother like that, laid out like that in vinyl bag. The investigation has also impacted Kennedy. Like with any cold case detective, the emotional connection to a victim and to the victim's family starts to take hold. His admiration and affection for the Norris family has kept his engine running. You know, us and Dick's County Sheriff's Office, we're doing this for the family. You know, that, that's who we're working for. And yes, Norris is here doing something illegal. He shouldn't have been doing it. He you know, should have been arrested and sentenced to whatever time that you know the, the uh, a judge would have thought appropriate but he didn't deserve to be you know robbed and murdered and left in the woods you know I can't imagine what his parents went through both his parents died without knowing what happened to their son his five siblings waited 37 years to know what happened to their brother that he just left home and never came back and you know folks need to be held accountable for that and that's that's who we're working for is is uh, his family and this is dixie county's oldest unsolved homicide and they would like to see it uh, brought to justice kennedy says the case is solvable an arrest is within reach could it be that the killer is already in prison for another crime could it be that his name is included in that address book that Esperanza confiscated from her son's former roommate. Kennedy said both are possibilities. In my interview with him, he confirmed three things. That James Norris was a homicide victim. There are persons of interest in the case. And the investigation is being actively worked. And it is a multi-agency effort. To use a track analogy, if a homicide investigation is a full lap, and if the finish line is a conviction, then there would have been no starting gun, no getting off the starting line, without the effort of Esperanza Norris and her youngest daughter, Rosemary. Without this family's involvement, we would not have been able to, to one, make the identification, and two, start the investigation. By the family putting their DNA on file, with the California Department of Justice that allowed the comparison to be made. And by the family keeping their the, Jimmy's notebook, 
keeping the notes that their mom made back in 1974, 1975. That allowed us, you know, that listed his friends, his contacts, and that gave us a place to start. Uh, I mean, to give you an example, we're, we have over 200 reports in this case file right now. It is a voluminous case file, and we have gotten multiple leads on it, and we're following up on stuff. And as we speak, we're, there's another state assisting us on doing interviews. But can't emphasize the, the family that never gave up. Rosemary remains a bundle of optimism. She said she's thought a lot lately about what she would do and how she would react if her brother's case was solved with an arrest. The wind would be knocked out of her again, she told me. Also, she would not know what to do with all of her free time. So much of her energy is used up trying to find out what happened to her brother. She figures she would fill that void by taking up a new hobby or two and spending more time volunteering. It's an opportunity she's looking forward to because she refuses to lose hope. I think for me, I think that the overall lesson that I hope to, you know, impart to other people is just that, you know, to not give up hope on these sort of old cases. I mean, science and technology are there and can connect these dots. So, you know, I have a great fondness for people in, you know, that that situation that we were in all those years. And in fact, I, I started volunteering my time at the Fairfield Police Department and I helped in their missing persons department because I did acquire that sort of experience and I wanted to, to do something with it. I wanted to somehow help. And um, I find that immensely rewarding. You know, I'll be damned if I'm just gonna let this go. I'll, I'll be damned if I'm not gonna, you know, do what I can to, to speak out for them and to de- demand justice for them, to demand justice for my family, you know? And, and when I say justice, I mean justice here on this earth. You know, I'm not talking about some afterlife or whatever like that. I want it now. I want it in this lifetime. That really drives me still. I mean, I even though I mean the investigative part is left to them, I'm I'm on it. I am I don't want his story to just fade away. Anyone with information about the James Norris homicide case is urged to call the Dixie County Sheriff's Office at 352-498-1231. Or call the FDLE tips line at 1-888-ANY-TIPS. A $10,000 reward is being offered for information that leads to an arrest. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will take a look at a murder-for-hire plot that took place 20 years ago in Boca Raton that left the victim paralyzed but transformed her into a champion for domestic abuse victims. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.